Amen. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please open up to John chapter 19. <clears throat> Today we're going to interrupt our study in, in, uh, in 1 Timothy, and we're going to look at the resurrection story. Obviously, it's, it's Easter, and this is what we do. One of the things I learned that we do on Easter 11 years ago when I became the pastor of this church is that I'm supposed to say, He is risen. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't know you were supposed to do that. And so my first Easter when I was here, I said, good morning, everybody. And they all looked at me and I said, what? I got some of my teeth or like, good morning. And they're like, you're supposed to say he is risen. I'm like, I am? I said, he is risen. And then like the, you know, the handful of people shouted back at me. I was like, oh, that's what we're supposed to do. So happy Easter. Um, so today we are in, we're going to begin the story in John chapter 19, verses 28 through 35. Uh, we're uh, joining the story when Jesus has been on the cross for a number of hours. Um, And so we'll pray and we'll look at our story today. Father, we do thank you for the risen Christ. We thank you that Jesus came, that he lived a perfect life, that he went to the cross on our behalf. Uh, The gospel tells us that that he stood in our place, uh, that our sin is deserving of your wrath and there's no way around that. There's no offering we can make of our own accord. But that Christ stepped out of heaven as God and became man, a concept that we cannot fully wrap our minds around. But that he, being fully God and fully man, lived the perfect life and went to the cross, not for any crime, not for any sin, but by his own choice, he went to the cross to make a sacrifice for us. We thank you that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was sufficient uh, for our sins, that he made the payment in full, and that all we have to do is believe. Father, I pray that you would uh, cleanse us, purify us, straighten out our thinking, Lord, that we would understand grace that Christ died so we could live. Christ died on our behalf that his sacrifice was sufficient. There's nothing for us to do. We believe it's done, it's finished. So often, Lord, we live and think that we have to cover some shortage that the work of the cross didn't cover. We fall into the trap of works thinking that we have to do things uh, to please you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would free us to experience grace, to know that it's about what he did on our behalf, and that in him we have his righteousness gifted to us, imputed to us, credited to our account. And so, Father, today as we look at the resurrection story, I pray for those that may be hearing this that don't know you, that you would help them in their journey with you that um, they would come to the place where they could trust in Christ for salvation for those of us that know him as Savior. Father, I pray that you would help us to, to, li- to live our life um, uh, transformed by this truth. Um, for every day we celebrate Easter as Christians. And so, Lord, we give you glory and honor and praise, and we ask that you would bless this time now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. John chapter 19, verse 28. 
after this, remember Jesus has been on the cross for a number of hours. He was arrested late the night before. He'd been beaten, bruised. He's been suffocating on the cross for many hours. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar, of, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with them. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. I want to pause here and point out that this is the Apostle John writing. As he, John pens the gospel, he refuses to identify himself by name. He only identifies himself humbly as a man whom Jesus loved. And so John writes that he has seen this and he is testifying and his testimony is truth. And he, that's John, knows that he is telling the truth for the purpose so that you also may believe. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for the gospel account. We thank you for the story that has been preserved for us. We ask that you would move in our hearts, move in our minds. Lord, help us to respond uh, to the invitation that you are extending to each one of us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Um, <clears throat> I think it's always important when we start these stories. Uh, two times a year, we have Easter, we have Easter and we have Christmas. And... These stories are connected to other characters that are fictional characters. And it's easy to lump Jesus with these stories of fiction. Um, early in my Christian life, I remember attending a church on Tuesday nights. I went there to sort of get my friend off my back who had invited me to church, told him I would go once. He didn't share with me that there was free pizza, and so the free pizza kept drawing me back sort of every Tuesday. And, and I went with a really critical spirit. Um, I, I was initially, there was something that was drawing me there. But at the same time, in my mind, in my heart, I was just arguing with the guy the whole time. Like, not verbally, but as I listened, I, I had a little yellow pad in my mind, and I was arguing with him the entire time. And one Sunday, a lady came, and she uh, shared her story. And it was a powerful story. I can't tell you what it was, but I remember being really moved by her story of salvation. And at the end of her story, she essentially said that whether these things are true or not, my life has been changed. And so if the whole gospel is made up, it's okay because 
my life is better for believing. And there was something that she said that I just, like, I remember going, I, that, I'm here for the pizza, but if this is a placebo, there's, there's no point in my being here. I'm just wasting my time. And the scripture agrees with her. See, uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he explains the gospel. He says that Jesus went to the cross according to scriptures, meaning that it was prophesied that the Messiah would come and that he would go to the cross. And on the cross, he would, make, uh, he would absorb the penalty of our sin, of the world's sin, that the wrath of God would be placed on him, that he would be put into the grave for three days and that he would rise again. And the scriptures foretold this. And Paul says this is the gospel. And to receive the benefits of the gospel, it's as simple as believing. It's so profound that it goes against our whole economy. And Paul, who is one of the greatest converts of all times, none of us that I know of have gone out killing and arresting Christians for their profession of Christ, but he did. And he encountered Christ and his whole life was changed. And as he wrote that in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, uh, that at the time of my writing, there's upwards of 500 men, which could be thousands of people who saw and witnessed the risen Christ, who will give their testimony that they saw the risen Lord. And at the end of this, by the time you come to verse 17, he writes this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If we have hope for Christ in this life only, we of all men are most to be pitied. So he says, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, don't waste your time at church. Don't waste your time doing any of this because it's futile. So when we come to the story, I want us to realize that the story is grounded in history. The story is grounded in evidence. This isn't just blind faith. This is, this is faith based on reasonable evidence. For those that are making the trip to Israel, you'll go and you'll see that the, the, the evidence is there. I, I say all of this because today I'm going to move quickly through the story and Brian is going to share his testimony with us. And Brian has a, a, a tremendous story. But I want to be cautious that we not be so moved based on his story, but that we're moved by the work of Christ that has transformed this man's life transformed my life, has transformed many of our lives in here. So the story begins, John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, this is Sunday, they'd had the, the Passover, sort of an extended weekend. There were Passover restrictions on how they could travel, what they could do. And so we're told on the very first day of the week, as the sun was rising, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken from the tomb. So Jesus, which we sort of skipped over, after he was crucified, he gave up his spirit. His life wasn't taken from him. It was given for us. We're told through the accounts that there was a wealthy man there who had a grave or a tomb that was nearby that had never been used, and that's important because if it had been used by his family members, nobody else could be buried there, but because... It was fresh off the lot. He could donate this to Jesus. And so they, he pleads with those in authority and says, can I please take the body down? Can I have it put into the tomb? Can he, he's, he's dead. And so they prepare his body. They quickly 
before sunset, get him to the tomb. And um, the Passover began. And a number of days goes by. And so now we're told in John's account that Mary Magdalene, she came early to the tomb. She's, and she sees that the stone, God, this is not the stone behind me, but it, think of this is a huge 2,000-pound stone is moved. Something terrible had happened. Um, to, to lose a loved one if by natural causes is a terrible experience. It's painful. Imagine you lose somebody that you love, you bury them at, at the graveyard on a Friday, and on Monday you want to go to put some flowers there. On Monday you arrive and you see all of the dirt lifted out of the grave, and there's no body there. Like, this would be a horrifying experience. And Jesus' execution had all sorts of, uh, uh, basically a riot had, was, was formed around him, and the whole town was in an uproar, and there's all sorts of things. There's, there's reason for her to believe that somebody had desecrated his body, had stolen his body, had done something bad to it. And so the tear, I'm guessing tear, grief, agony, uh, confusion, anger, overtook her. Verse 2, so she ran and she came to Simon Peter, the oldest, the leader of the apostles, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that was the baby of the apostles, John, who is the author of this book, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb and the two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. I really need to grow up. This, 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 these senses crack me up. The, the guy writing the book is the apostle John. He's writing this. He's the baby of them. He points out that, hey, we were both there, me and the old guy Peter. We get the news Gun fires, we take off running, and I beat him. <clears throat> like I said, I probably need to grow up, but this, like, well, I don't think this will ever not be funny to me. <clears throat> Verse 5, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings, wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. So John is speaking about himself in the, first, or the third person. He comes up, he looks in, and he can kind of see evidence, but he doesn't go in. Now, I need to explain this. If you go to Israel with us or if you've been there, there's the garden tomb. We don't know for sure that this is the location that Jesus was buried. There's no body. There's no evidence. Well, there's evidence, I should say, but there's no remains. And so based on the biblical account, a number of years ago, they unearthed this, this, uh, this garden. And in the garden, there's a tomb and there's an opening. And so when you enter into the tomb, you're in a room. I say room, it's, I don't know, like an 8 by 10 area. And to the left and to the right, there's two places for bodies. Now, on the left side, I believe it is, there's no chiseling away where a head would be. It was never used. On the other side, there's a spot that's been chiseled away that there's evidence that one body had used that location. And so when John says he's looking in, this is a three-roomed sort of tomb 
John is looking into the main room, trying to see to the right or to the left, the other room, and he sees evidence that there's something there. But he didn't go in. Verse 6, and so Simon Peter also came following and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, John, who had first come to the tomb and then entered, also entered, and saw, and he saw and believed. For as of yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So John beats Peter to the grave or the tomb. He stops for fear, I'm assuming. There's something about death that we don't like going near. We don't like crossing that line. We don't like touching dead bodies. We don't like being, there's, there's something within us that stops us. And so young John is nervous. Peter eventually gets there. He goes right in. He's an older man. He's an experienced man. He's been around death likely. So he goes into the tomb. He leads the way for young John. He goes in. John says he finally goes in. And when he goes in, I think he gets a clearer picture of the scene. And so when it says he believed, he's not talking about that he came to salvation in Christ. It's, came, it's talking about that he came to believe that the body was gone. Because look what it says in verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So he wasn't thinking, oh, Jesus rose from the dead. He goes in. He's like, no, I believe it. The bo- they were right. The body's gone. Verse 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. Oh, I skipped verse 10, excuse me. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. They all just split. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? I love the questions in the Bible. Previously in the or maybe I should say coming in the story, after the resurrection when Jesus ascends into heaven, they're all standing there like, what in the world just happened? And an angel appears and says, what are you guys looking at? <laughs> like, what do you mean what are we looking at? We just saw Jesus like go up into the clouds. Uh, she's like, Jesus, my Lord, he was murdered. We buried him three days ago, and now he's gone, and you're asking me why I'm weeping? Seems like a foolish question. She says, midway through verse 13, and she said to them, because they have taken my, away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she'd said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she is not happy. Like, what's up with all these questions? The angel's asking me why am I weeping? Then now this gardener's asking me why I'm weeping? She's not in a mood to answer this question, but she says to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, 
stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, and your Father and my God and your God. So this is beautiful. She realizes this is Jesus. She immediately hugs on to him as if he rose from the dead, or she thought he was dead and now he's alive. She's clinging on to him. He's like, okay, I have work to do. Go let them know. So she takes off. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, I want to pause here to clear up any sort of anti-Semitism. When we read phrases like this, for fear of the Jews, they're all Jews in this story. This isn't like the Jews are the bad guys and the Gentiles are the good guys. They're all Jews. When he says the Jews, he's talking about the non-believing Jews. They're Jews. They're the believing Jews. And they're afraid of their fellow countrymen from the synagogue who had Jesus executed for blasphemy. His blasphemy was that he claimed to be God. And we know the story that he is God. But they're hunkered down. It was logical. They were fearful from the turmoil that was stirred up in the town that the authorities who had taken Jesus into custody, that it would be logical for them to come to him. And I always think of the King Stallman bail bondsman commercials. Back when we had football in San Diego, we no longer have football in town. But whenever the Raiders would come to town, they would show these commercials on TV and you just see the door locking and all the deadbolts and chains and everything up, and then it would just come on the screen. You may not be happy that the Raiders are coming to town, but we are. King Stallman bail bonds. Like, like, hey, the Raiders are coming to town. All their fans are a bunch of hoodlums, offense intended, and we're going we're gonna to get a bunch of money because we're going to be able to give them their bond. And so that image comes to mind. These guys are like locked in this room, fearful. For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. He did not open the front door. He has a resurrected body. He appeared. He's no longer bound by human constraints that he had in his incarnation. He is now risen from the dead. He's no longer humbled himself that Philippians 2 speaks of. He is deity. And he appears in this room. And if these guys thought they were afraid of the Jews, they would have been terrified of the risen Christ because any encounter with deity strikes fear in man through the scriptures. And Jesus says to them, Shalom, peace be with you. Verse 20, and when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. It's a beautiful picture. I've been going through a book recently. Uh, there's two of them, Kisses from Kate or something. It's about this young lady who was 19 or 18. She moved to Sudan, and, not Sudan, Uganda or somewhere in Africa. And she adopted all of these kids. And then she uh, started going through some really difficult times and wrestling with suffering and pain and sorrow as a Christian. And how does God fit into the whole mix? And she said something. I'm listening to the book. 
And, and, uh, and this week, there was a line she said. She said, you know, when Jesus was risen from the dead, he still had his wounds. And she's like, this is a lesson that I've had to learn is that I, I need to not be a, try to get rid of my scars and my wounds, but, but to be able to bring glory to God in the midst of my pain and suffering. And, and, and so here he, in his risen body, there's still evidence of his, of his wounds from the crucifixion. And he lets them touch it to see the evidence. And we're told that the disciples rejoiced and they, when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, Shalom, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. This is the beginning of the teaching of explaining to them the, of the Great Commission, that they're going to be commissioned to go out and to reach the world with the gospel. And Jesus, as the Father sent him, he is sending them out to be the forefathers of the church. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And so we get this foretaste of the Spirit's coming. We know that Pentecost would come. Somewhere in here, he breathes the Spirit of God on them, and, and they're able to receive it. Beautiful, powerful story. And we get the butt Thomas. <laughs> Poor guy. One of the 12 called Didymus, that means the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. I always get Subway in my mind. I don't know why. I kind of feel like the guy's like, hey, we're really, if it's dangerous out there, can you go run to Subway and pick us up some sandwiches and then come back? And but I don't think that he was at Subway. I don't think Subway existed back then. But I, I have the, for some reason, Thomas left them. And he comes back. And when he comes back, verse 25, so the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. And we give him such a hard time because what would your reaction be? You, see, the, the Romans, when they executed, they executed. This isn't like, like me as a kid in Lake Tahoe when I caught my first catfish and I thought I killed it. And then I put it on the barbecue and it started flopping all around. Catfish is an animal that's hard to kill. <clears throat> that's not what happened to Jesus. These, these Roman executors were executors. They knew. They broke the legs to suffocate the guys fastly. They looked at Jesus and said, you're not dead. Well, I'm going to stab him. And when they stabbed him, blood and water came out. And you can do all of the scientific research that medical doctors will tell you what's happening that it affirms that he's dead. These guys wouldn't make a mistake. They, don't, they didn't make mistakes. Jesus is dead. They all saw it. Now Thomas comes back after the crucifixion. They're all saying, we just saw Jesus. He's like, yeah, right. We give him such a hard time doubting Thomas. Thomas is a reasonable man in my opinion. What does he say? He says, unless I see his hands and the imprint of his nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand at his side, I will not believe. Why is this reasonable? Because they're all telling him they saw the risen Lord. Well, if you saw him, where is he? If he's alive, he's alive. Shh, let me see him. After eight days, that had to be the longest eight days of Thomas's life. Every day, these guys trying to witness to him and share with him that they saw him. After eight days, his disciples 
were again inside and Thomas with them and Jesus came and the doors had been shut again and he stood in their midst and said, Shalom, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. I am. Um, this is where I'm going to break. Um, I want to introduce Brian. Um, you can come on up, Brian. And, and uh, apparently I first met Brian. I vaguely remember meeting Brian. I'd moved to Valley Center. I came to this church, and it was about 11 years ago, and I kind of looked out one of the windows, and I see a guy riding a unicycle in the parking lot. And so I went and said, hey, man, you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm good. I just ride a unicycle to a safe spot. I said, okay, God bless you, and went on my way. I vaguely remember, I remember the unicycle, but Brian said, yeah, I first met you when I was drunk riding the unicycle in the parking lot. <laughs> and I said, you were drunk and riding the unicycle? Like, I'm like, I don't remember the drunk part. I just remember... What kind of place is this that people are riding unicycles in church parking lots? And, uh, you know, years go by. Brian is one of the most helpful guys. He lives right across the street here. And, and you know, he went to Horizon. We don't need to go to that whole story. Um, but, but he would come over and say, hey, you need a hand with anything. And, and Brian, Brian is one of the, the most gracious uh, servants th- that I've ever met. Um, it's been a joy to see God's hand in his life. Um, the hardest thing for me is not to interrupt him during his story. I'll be like, hey, hey, don't forget that one. He's like, Gunnar, you know that part because I told you that part. I'm not going to forget that part. But I learned new stuff today, so we'll see what other stories he pulls out today. So here's Brian. I'm, I'm excited to hear him share his testimony again about how Christ has transformed his life. Thank you, Gunnar. Thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure and honor to be here. Uh, thank you all for being here, especially on this day that we, we look towards the risen Christ. And if it weren't for for the grace of God, I wouldn't be here to share this story with you today. Now, uh, this testimony is, uh, well, I've been through a lot. I've I've done a lot of different things, and I think the same could be said for all of us. Though they may be different, different ways, different things, our testimonies are unique to us, and they're very individual, and they are a tool that God has given us to bless other people with, to share his, his grace and his mercy and his love with other people. So I want to encourage you all that you have a testimony and it's powerful and that the Lord would like for you to, to use that. So, so I'm going to start. Uh, I, was, I was born uh, in California in 1959, and I uh, was a Navy brat. My dad was a fighter pilot in the Navy. He was based, uh, I mean, he flew off of uh, aircraft carriers, and he was gone on tour quite often. And there was four boys, and my mother, my dear mother, who's here with us today, um, she, she got to uh, try to steer four boys in the right direction. And uh, so, so as a youngster, 
I, I, I was raised in the Catholic Church. We went to the Catholic Church. Uh, I was baptized in the Catholic Church. I was an altar boy. I was confirmed. I, I did all these things that I thought were leading me to God. And, and I claimed to believe in God, but I did not know who he was. I did not know who he was. Now, not to embarrass you, Mom, but I have a vivid picture. It, it, it's implanted in my mind that it will never leave me. And that is Mom dragging the four boys up to the doors of the church and stopping right there in the doors of the church. And she would spit on her hand and fix my hair. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was like the most embarrassing and, and humiliating for a young boy to have to experience. And, and so, so I, don't fall, I don't blame you, but... Um, <laughs> it was. It kind of turned me off on church, to be quite honest. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, yes. Through the Catholic Church, uh, I came to the place where I, where I, I claimed a belief in God, but I did not know who He was. Uh, we moved to here to Valley Center in 1977. When the day after I graduated from high school, uh, where I grew up. Well, I, I'm sorry. I'll, let me back up a second. We, we were in uh, north, northern Illinois, north of, just north of Chicago for 11 years from the third grade until the day I graduated from high school. And the area, the suburbs that we lived in, there was a lot of drugs. And, I mean, the prevalence of the drugs was, was just incredible. And uh, at, at the age of about 14, I started drinking and experimenting uh, with drugs, and little did I know I was embarking on a long career in doing just that. Uh, we moved here in 1977, and 1978-79, I moved out and moved up onto Palomar Mountain with a bunch of hippies. We lived in a commune kind of environment. We rented several cabins and lived in a 40-man tent at, at some point. But it was all about enjoying life, partying, having fun. The alcohol, the drugs, just they, they continued to progress and to get worse. I, I, I still look back, and it was one of the funnest years of my life. But the things that we did, it's just a wonder we're still alive. Um, in uh, the early 80s, I went to work for a local fence company, Valley Center Fence, and we got a contract, and we began working down at the San Diego Wild Animal Park doing animal containment. And so I was running jobs down there, and I had the keys to the Wild Animal Park from the inside and out, from the back to the front, all the enclosures with all the animals. We had firsthand experiences with, with all of the animals. Uh, and I'm going to share just, just a couple of those with you. These are, these are, these are times when... When I look back and I see God's grace in my life, uh, I had a Daniel experience one time, and, and the Lord knows I'm not exaggerating this at all, but we were working on the tiger exhibit, and they have what we call the dungeon, and that's a, a, it's a cinder block building. So it's, it's halfway underground and half above, and it had sunroofs on it with bars welded so that the, the cats could get the sun in fresh air. So we're working on the exhibit doing an addition, and uh, I was installing a guillotine door, which is a, a 
steel door that, that works like a guillotine and it was remotely operated through a series of cables and pulleys and a lever. And the, the lever was up on top of the, the, the dungeon. So I, I finished installing the door and the, and the cables and I was working the lever to, op, to try to operate the door and it was bound up. It was binding somewhere. And I kept pulling and I kept pulling and, and I gave it everything I had and I pulled on it and it didn't let go. And I tumbled backwards and I landed on top of one of the sunrooms. And there was a mama, full-grown mama with three cubs underneath in there. And she came off of the ground, put her, her, her arms, front arms, her legs through the bars and grabbed me by the leg. And she had a hold of both sides of my leg, actually tore my Levi's, pulled the sock out through the rip in my, in my jeans and gouged my boots, my boot on both sides all the way down, but never put a scratch on me. So it was like, I, I, all I, it happened so fast and all I saw was teeth. I, I wasn't even aware of the, the fact that she had a whole, I was just, it was just unbelievable. So when I look back, uh, I see God's grace written all over that. How many people could say they've had a, a full grown Sumatran tiger have a hold of their leg and survive to tell about it? Uh, uh, we also uh, were rammed by a rhinoceros attacked by ostriches and, and all kinds of animals. And we also had a lot of really neat experiences as well. So moving on. Uh, uh, <laughs> I was married in 1983. My daughter was, attended my wedding. She was three months old. Uh, the, the marriage uh, was, it was strained from the beginning because both myself and my wife at the time were, were dabbling in drinking and, and using drugs, and, and it was just a totally dysfunctional uh, marriage. The marriage uh, wound up in a divorce. 1996, we had been separated for a good number of years between the time that We separated and were divorced. My daughter stayed with me and lived with me. So, so here I am. I'm a working guy, and I'm using and I'm drinking and I'm carrying on and I'm I'm raising a young girl. Thank God I had grandmas. Thank God I had grandmas. They helped me. So I had two grandmas who were willing to help, and and to this day, you know. Uh, I still have cards and different things from my daughter that, that I, I have a whole suitcase full of stuff that I'm going to share with my granddaughters one of these days. And she, she thanks me for being the strict dad I was. You know, I, I, I was a hypocrite, but I kept a tight rein on her. And, and she grew up to be such an amazing Christian woman. Her husband is a deputy sheriff in San Luis Obispo County. She's a business owner, a successful business owner. They have two children, and they're just amazing Christians, and I couldn't be more, more blessed. So I see God's grace written all over that, you know. It, it, thank you, Lord. It's all I can say. Praise God, you know. So uh, I've lived hard. I, uh, I broke myself up. I mean, I... I I've had so many broken bones, and I have had 17 surgeries, not counting the minor ones. I have plates, pins, and screws, mesh and prosthetic implants in both of my middle ears. Uh, 
uh, wow, in 1991, I was drinking at uh, Oakville Lodge. I left there and I was blacked out drunk, which I had a habit of doing. I was that guy who was on the highway after drinking and driving that put everybody at risk without, a, without even thinking about it, that puts you at risk, your kids at risk. Your, you know, I was that, that selfish guy who didn't care about anything but, but feeding myself and my, my addictions and doing what I wanted to do. Uh, I was also electrocuted at shortly, uh, well, it was a few years after that truck accident. Uh, I was working on a job down in Escondido. I picked up a heavy-duty half-inch drill motor, which was a, an old, old high-amp one with a metal, metal chassis, and it had a ground fault in it. And I pulled the trigger, and bam, my other arm, my hand just slapped it like a magnet. So it was first thing in the morning. There was heavy fog. The grass was all wet. I'm standing on a two-foot sidewalk, and I can't let go of this thing, and I'm swinging, I'm swinging it, trying to get rid of it, and I could not let it go, and, I, and eventually I... I reached the end of the extension cord and it pulled out of the wall. And that, the drill, I let that drill motor go and it flew, but I was standing on that two-foot sidewalk. If I took a step in either direction off that sidewalk, it'd been all, it, it, it would have been over. Um, so that's another instance where I could see God's grace at work in my life. When that happened, I, I actually, you know, we talk about near-death experiences. I experienced, I, I was removed from consciousness as I know it, and I, and I saw a, a, it was a pale bluish-gray color, and it's just this weird sensation. That's all I, I could remember of it. I, 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 I classify that as a near-death experience. I mean, that's the only thing it could have been. It was very, very odd. So all of these, uh, all of these things, head trauma twice, uh, uh, all of these things pale in comparison to the pain that I've suffered as a result of the hearing issues that I have. I have, uh, as a child, I had chronic ear infections, and so I had a history of ear problems, hearing problems. I had lost hearing due to the loud concerts and loud music and different things like that. And in 2004, I had, on the job, I had an accident, and I had molten metal blown into my left ear. And it disintegrated the eardrum, burned into the middle ear, and uh, I, I went into surgery to repair that. They put in a prosthetic implant because the bones were damaged. There was nerve damage and all kinds of damage in the middle ear. And they put in uh, the prosthetic implant. When I woke up from the surgery, I woke up to a head full of radical, radical noise. They diagnosed me with severe exacerbated, they've, they've called it all kinds of things, debilitating tinnitus. Uh, most, most people think of, when they think of tinnitus, they think of ringing in the ears. Well, I have ringing, I have severe, severe ringing, but I have eight, 10, 12 other radical noises and they're extremely loud uh, that I hear pretty much all the time, pretty much all the time. And so, I was going completely nuts. This was driving, I had lost hearing. I was practically, 
I was down 70% hearing in this year and 60% in this. So I was not hearing the things that I was supposed to hear, yet I was, my head was full of noise and I'm drinking to try to numb the pain and it's just, just driving me completely, completely uh, crazy. Um, it brought me to a point where, where uh, I, I decided and I accepted the fact that there was no longer peace attainable for Brian. I was never going to know peace. I was never going to know quiet. And the only way that I had reasoned in my mind to make that stop would be to stop breathing. So I found myself uh, in my bedroom shaking, crying, out of control with a 12-gauge shotgun in the barrel of it in my mouth. And I'm just barely able to reach. And, I'm sh it, 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 and it's all a blur, but I wound up blowing a hole through the bedroom wall. Almost shot myself with, with a shotgun. There was uh, another instance where I swallowed a whole bottle of, of sleeping pills. And, and I followed that with alcohol. And, you know, I didn't even go to sleep. It was the weirdest thing. But so, so <laughs> I, I mean, I, uh, yeah. So uh, I had planned multiple different ways to, to end my life, to stop breathing, to stop the noise, to stop the pain. And when I, when I had done that with, with the shotgun and I, and I came that close to, to shooting myself, I, I came to the point where I, I, knew, I knew that I had to do something, and I immediately I got rid of my guns. I just That day I, I shoved my guns off on somebody else, and I checked myself into the hospital for an evaluation, 72-hour hold. And while I'm in the hospital, of course, you got to remember, I, I'm, I'm, deal, I'm dealing with a drug addiction and alcohol addiction and, and then all of this. And they're treating me like a psych patient. They're wanting to pump me full of psych meds. And, and they're asking me if I'm suicidal. And I'm, I'm being as, as open and honest with them as I could. I told them that, that. There wasn't a day that went by that I didn't think about ending my life because it's the only way I knew that I could silence the noise that was so badly driving me crazy. And so what wound up happening in there was the doctor came in and with a nurse, he started reading this paper, and I can't hear him. I mean, I'm, I'm almost deaf. Uh, I can't hear him. I didn't know what he was reading. And I told him, I said, I can't hear you, I can't hear you, I can't. He just kept reading and reading. They were reading in order to keep me in the hospital 14 days against my will because of the fact that I was a threat to my own life. And uh, I, being in the, in the uh, behavioral science department of the hospital, I, I went ballistic. I absolutely lost it. I kicked, I threw everything that wasn't bolted down. I kicked and I screamed. I scared every patient in there, the doctors, the nurses, everybody. They came in with a straitjacket. They were going to put me in a straitjacket. But they, they stopped. And for some reason, they did not put me in that straitjacket. I calmed down. They explained to me that the only way for me to get that order overturned was for it to go before a Supreme Court judge and have it overruled. And I went ballistic again. And by God's grace... 
And I don't know, my mother was a full-time volunteer at the hospital for a good number of years. I don't know if she pulled strings or what happened, but they released me the next day. They released me the next day, which was quite, quite a miracle. So being, uh, wow, being that drunk driver, I was arrested three times. The one time was when I flipped that truck. Uh, the second time, I can hardly even remember. The third time, I reached a point, and it was right here on Miller Road. I ran my truck off the road into a little bit of scrub oak, and I could have driven away, but I was so emotionally distraught. I was so torn up that I just got out of my truck, and I, I sat down on the ground, and when the sheriff came there, and he, he says, what's going on? What happened? Have you been driving? I said, yes, sir, I have. You know, And I started just pouring out my pain in my heart to, to the sheriff that was there. And so they called in the highway patrol to transport me down to, J to Vista. And they were very, very friendly. They were very, very kind. They didn't even cuff me. And the highway patrolman put me in the front seat of his car and drove me to jail. While I was in jail, I finally confronted my selfishness. I finally realized that, that I was well, the epitome of selfish, you know, uh, putting you and everybody else at risk every time I went out and drove. Uh, it's, just, it's just a horrible, horrible way to live. So uh, through all this, every now and then I would, I would get to a point where I'm in deep despair and sorrow, and I would, I would go to my mom and say, Mom, I need to go to church. You know, I need to do something. I'm, I'm just... And we would go to church. And I'm thinking that church was going to solve my problems, that going to church was going to make me better. And here I was again going through the motions. This time I wasn't in the Catholic church. It was in the Christian church. I'm going to church, and, I, and I'm listening. I'm not really, sometimes not really paying attention. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm listening, but I'm thinking about, well, what is this going to be over so we can go out and have breakfast so I can play the part of being a church person? And that would solve my problems. And and sadly and truthfully, we know that that, that would not work. So uh, eventually, uh, a short time after that last arrest, uh, I decided to go to Horizon Christian Fellowship, was down here on Valley Center Road at the time. And the people at Horizon welcomed me in. They embraced me. They loved on me. They, they, they prayed over me. They they nurtured me, and it was there where I finally met Christ and, and allowed him into my heart and into my life. Uh, so I still have all this noise in my head. It's still working. I'm still driving me crazy, but, but God gave me his word. You know, I'm, I'm praying for peace, for peace, which I didn't believe was available because my head is and still today is still full of all this noise. I'm praying for peace, and God says, I, I'll give you my word. He gave me a very simple verse. It was Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And I started reading and reading and reading, and, and I wasn't able to work, so I spent years reading God's word. I was so mixed up and messed up with all this stuff in my head, the noise in my head, that I, I would read, put it down to come back, and I couldn't even remember what I was reading, but God says, just press on. Press on, keep reading, keep reading. You want peace? 
you're going to find it here. And so I did for a great number of years. Uh, I did a, a, a considerable amount of reading. I read the Bible, and, and please, I'm not boasting, but this is what God had me do. This is what it took for me. I started with the message, and I read that, and then I read the NIV several times, and I went to the New King James, and I read that several times, and then I went to the King James, and I read that a couple times, and, and through it all, even though I still have all this stuff going on, this noise, this, this, I also have a hypersensitivity. It's called, called hyperacusis, which is a, a collapsed field of tolerance to certain frequencies of sound. So I'm hypersensitive. Some sounds are, are painful to me. Uh, so with all this stuff going on, I just kept pressing and pressing into God's word. And the people at, at Horizon were discipling me. I was growing, I stepped into service, and just kept on serving, and uh, eventually uh, I, I got to a position where I was working in leadership, church leadership, in capacity. Uh, I was attending AA, I was going to the Most Excellent Way, which is a Christian recovery program there at, at Horizon, and eventually I wound up leading that ministry. Uh, so uh, I also, from Horizon, I went out to San Diego Horizon and went to the Horizon School of Evangelism. And uh, after that, or during that course, went with 55 people to Portland, Oregon. And we, we went street witnessing on, in Portland, doing service projects and different things in the city for three weeks. That would be uh, the first trip that I did in, in service for the Lord. Now, I, I want to recognize the fact that, that up until, pretty much up until now, I've been speaking I as me, I, 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 but now when I say I, it's Christ in me. It's not me, but it's Christ in me. So, the Lord, uh, he, he brought these opportunities up for me to, to serve. I, I, I went to, uh, Operation Christmas Child, I, I, I participated in some packing parties. I worked at the, uh, at the, uh, uh, the warehouses, and I, I, the Lord had put Alaska on my heart. I wanted to go to Alaska. I wanted to do something for the Lord in Alaska. And then Samaritan Purse, all of a sudden I got an email one day, here's an opportunity to go to Alaska, serve the Lord. And, and I wound up going to uh, an Eskimo village out on the coast of the Bering Sea called Quigalingak. Very remote, very isolated, very, very much primitive for the most part, and we built the church there in that community. Uh, the community consisted of about uh, two to three hundred people, and there was uh, alcohol was banned, but there was still a prevalent problem with the alcohol. Being that it was such a tight knit community, the people that were drinking, the people that were having problems with the alcohol, it was kind of an in closet thing, and the family would shield that because they knew that that if the elders found out that they would be kicked out of the village, and they didn't want for that to happen. So there was a lot of neat ministry opportunities there. I wound up going back to Alaska, to Port Allsworth, Alaska, uh, and serving at a ministry called Operation Heal Our Patriots, which is another Samaritan's Purse ministry. It's a uh, retreat camp for wounded war veterans and their spouses. And the focus of the ministry is marriage enrichment, 
These guys are coming back from the war with, you know, amputees, uh, uh, PTSDs, you name it, from top to the bottom, the whole range of, of afflictions that come from war. And they're coming back and their marriages are strained. And so, so I was so blessed to be a part of that, that ministry where the focus is to, to draw the marriages, strengthen the marriages, to bring them back together and to give them a foundation in Christ that'll, that'll hold them together. And then Hurricane Sandy, I wound up spending six weeks over in uh, Port, uh, sorry, Tom's River, New Jersey, doing hurricane relief out on the barrier island in the communities of Ortley Beach and Seaside Heights, Seaside Park, Lavalette. All these areas were hit very hard. It was like a war zone. Just awesome, awesome time and awesome ministry. And watching and being involved with so many people, seeing the work of God, going on, seeing Jesus Christ in the people there working and accepting coming to Christ, the saving faith. It's just, it's such a blessing. Uh, I I serve at Gleanings for the Hungry five years going now. This year will be my sixth or next year. Uh, My heart is kind of in in Mexico. I serve with Rancho San Juan Bosco. Most of you are familiar with that's an orphanage in Tecate, Mexico. We have a food drive going. And I want to thank you all for, for contributing to that and still invite people, anybody that would like to come down. We go down every Wednesday and some Saturdays. We, we shop, we bring food, we cook meals, we fellowship with the kids. I've been doing that for almost seven years, and it's like having an extended family. These people, I'm part of their family, and they're part of my family. It's just an amazing, an amazing ministry that's going on there. Uh, the Lord has allowed me to spend time with individuals with terminal illness and to stay with them and to to spend time with them right up until the point of their passing, giving them assurance through God's word of their salvation. These are Christian people, but when they reach that point where they know that, that, that their time has come, it's, it's, it's just, there's still doubts. And, and to be able to, to minister in that way is just, just an op- awesome opportunity. Uh, I was in Japan with Gunner uh, last year, participated in VBS, uh, and Lord willing, I, I, I plan on going on the is- Israel trip coming up next year. Uh, I also do, uh, did two trips to Morelia, which is in Michoacan State, Mexico, which is, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a dicey area where the cartels are working and everything, but working with orphanages down there, doing ministry teaching in Small community churches actually did federal, uh, ministry in the federal penitentiary down there. And uh, just an awesome, awesome, awesome uh, opportunity. I'm praying about going back there. I'm praying about possibly going to Nairobi to, to work with, with AIM in Nairobi. Uh, and, and none of this would be possible if it weren't for the grace of God. None of this would be possible. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for the grace of God. We are so blessed. We are so fortunate that we can meet together as a church, that we don't have to fear the government authorities coming in and, and shutting us down and burning our buildings down. or getting, you know, God's grace is, is beyond my comprehension. And I look back in my life at, at the things that I've done and the things that I've experienced and I can see God's grace written all over it, all over it. Uh, 
I want to re- I want to uh, read just a couple of passages uh, of scripture. One that I hold very dear to me that has been one of my anchors is in Second Second Corinthians chapter twelve, and Paul the apostle had just been taken up to the third heaven and given visions that he could not utter. It was not lawful for him to even share that with men. And he was left with a thorn in his flesh. And, and in uh, 12, chapter 12, first, Second Corinthians, verse 7, says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And I want to tell you that that it's in Christ's strength that I stand here today. I was a broken, broken man, broken spiritually, broken emotionally, broken mentally, and Christ has restored me. He's restored my relationships. He's gone far beyond anything I could have ever, ever imagined. In just 13 years, 13 years, uh, one more passage uh, uh, it's a fairly well, well-known well passage. Pro- most of you probably know this passage. It's in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, chapter 8, I'm sorry, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. That we should not boast. God gives us his grace. He gives us our love. He allows us to come to him through Jesus. God is grace. We we think of grace as unmerited favor. God giving us the things that we don't deserve. And I certainly don't deserve the grace that I've been given. But God is grace. And God makes all things new. And he, he changes hearts changes lives. So, if anything, uh, I, I pray that uh, this story has been edifying, that, that if any of you are struggling in any way, if, if you know people, we probably all know people who are struggling in some way, whether it be addiction, whether it be spiritually, whether, whether it be afflictions, and they're hardened, their hearts are hardened towards the things of God. I just, I just want to, to let my story give hope. There's hope, and 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 I find out, I found out after, after I came to Christ that my neighbors that lived across the street from me for many years and other people, I found out later had been praying, praying for me for a long, long time. And God answers prayers. God answered those prayers. And, and so 
Pray for those people. Pray for those people. Don't stop. Be, be persistent. Keep praying because in God there is hope, in God's grace, and in God's love. Father, uh, God, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, God, for your love. We thank you, Lord, for your birth, Lord, for your sinless life, for going to the cross and shedding your blood to atone for the sins of the world, not just for ours, but for the sins of the world, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would equip us, that you would strengthen us, that you would build us up, that you would edify us through your word, through fellowship, through the teaching here at church, and that we would go out and we would share that with those in need, Lord, with those in need. I thank you that I'm here today. I thank you uh, for my church family. I thank you for all the experiences that you have provided in my walk, in my life. Jesus, you are amazing. And I'm eternally grateful. We just thank you for Jesus. We praise you and we love you. And it's in Christ's holy name that we pray.